If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to Mark chapter 9, and we'll be uh, worshiping the Lord by letting him speak to us. We believe that God's Word is inspired, that it's written by men through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the same Spirit who uh, caused men to write this is the same Spirit that we desperately need to understand and apply it rightly to our hearts. So if you have Mark, we'll look at chapter 9, uh, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to greet him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word, and we pray that you would bless your servant as we unpack the beautiful and wonderful things from your law. We again pray for your spirit to open our eyes. Father, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and accuracy in communicating and applying your word, that all glory and honor would be to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few months ago, my wife and I celebrated our 15th anniversary, and I know, man, that's a good thing, right? And uh, we took a trip to Miami, and um, it was everything that we had hoped it would be. It was truly glorious. Uh, from the weather to small things like not having to cook your own food and make up your own beds or vacuum your own house, we had a hotel, and so we had a house cleaners who took care of us. Uh, to enjoying Cuban culture. We spent an entire day in Little Havana enjoying Cuban culture, Cuban food. Uh, it was glorious. Uh, our hotel was right off the beach, and so we got to see an air show where the Blue Angels kind of flew in right over the ocean, and uh, it was glorious. Um, and then it ended, and we <laughs> had to come back to Jackson. 
And as soon as we got off the airplane, we were both slapped in the face. And not by a person, but by Mississippi heat. You kind of leave this place for a while, and you kind of come back in it, and it, it was just brutal. Then we got home, and our dog must have eaten something he was not supposed to eat, and there was diarrhea, like, all in his dog cage. And so I, was, I had to kind of clean it up. And then for some strange reason, our power in our neighborhood went out twice, like within the same week. And it, we're talking about light rains. And when it went out, it like stayed out, stayed out so long that like it's in the middle of Mississippi in the summer and your air conditioning unit isn't able to work. And we lost food that we had in the refrigerator because our refrigerator was not working for a while. And we were in the bed one night and she was like, babe, I wish we could push a button and go back. I wish we could go back. And she, of course, she didn't mean literally pick up and move to Miami, but I think what we were tapping into is that longing for glory, that longing for that space, that time we had together, that longing where life was for a season predictable and beautiful and, and glorious. Uh, but we had to kind of get back into the rhythms of a normal life in a broken world. That's a helpful frame for kind of understanding what's happening in our passage. If you weren't with us last week, Jesus and his three disciples were on a mountain. Uh, they were on a mountain, and then Moses and Elijah joined them. And the Father joined them. This glory cloud comes over the mountain, and the voice of God kind of echoes from the top of the mountain. But that's glory. And the disciples got a glimpse of Jesus' glory. But what you pick up right after that, notice where the text starts. Notice how it starts with, and when they came to the disciples. So you get this image that Jesus and the three disciples were up on a mountain, up in the glory cloud, where the voice of the Father was there, the presence of the Father, and all was well. And then they had to walk down the mountain and get back into real life. This is the backdrop to the, this song, to this, this passage. Is Jesus is not on the cloud anymore. He's not on the mountain. And as soon as he hits the base of the mountain, it's not glory, it's gore. In the sense of a son who's possessed by a demon, a father whose heart is broken, disciples who can't heal. It's just really fractured. And I think what Mark is writing about in this passage, I think what he wants to get us to is what's a picture of faith? What, what is faith? Because I want to make a case to you that the most chaotic thing at the base of the mountain is not what the demon is doing. The most chaotic thing at the base of the mountain is unbelief. And that's what we see Jesus walking down into. He walks into the valley of unbelief. There's chaos there. And could not that scene at the bottom of the mountain be any more different than the scene that was up top? Up top, it was the voice of the Father. Up top, there was peace. Up top, there was glory. Up top, there was serenity. And Jesus walks right into an argument. 
I mean, people are actually, I mean, did you catch what Jesus says? He walked right into a great crowd with the scribes around him, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were amazed, and they greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing with them? He walks into the demonic. There's this demonic spirit that is uh, indwelling this, this, this little boy. And it's a spirit that, that, that's causing him to not be able to talk and, and speak. And, and when he gets active in him, it throws him on the ground and, and sends him into epileptic seizures. And he gnaws his teeth and gnashes his teeth. And whenever there's fire, it wants to throw him in the fire. And whenever they're near water, it wants to sling him in the water. And this father has been raising this child from, from the earliest of ages. And it, he's still not getting better. And the temptation is to think that that's the worst thing at the base of the mountain, but I don't think it is. That what you see over and over in this passage is this reference to faith. Jesus tells the man, if you would, anything is possible for those who believe. When the disciples can't cast out this demon, notice what he says in verse 19. He answered them, and I don't think he's just talking to the disciples. I think he's talking about everyone there. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. In other words, the chaos at the base of the mountain is a lack of faith. Now, why is this a big deal to Jesus? Why does he say, you faithless generation? Why does he look out at the throngs of people and say, man, you guys just don't believe. You don't get it. You're not tracking with me. I don't have your heart. Like, why would he say that? Because I really think that at this point in his ministry, that there, the, the, the norm was not trust. I think when Jesus looks out at this crowd, he sees unbelief. Now, why is that a big deal? Like, why, 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 does this, uh, why is this a big deal to Jesus? Because faith is at the essence of the Bible. That I don't know about you, but if you read your Bibles, one, one of the things that will rise to the top is will men and women and children trust God? And that goes all the way to the end in the book of Revelation where John says, and he talks about this, right? He actually says, to the thirsty I will give water without payment. To the one who conquers, I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the faithless, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And so the closing chapters of the Bible, they tell us who will spend eternity with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's those counted faithful. And he tells us those who will not, those who are faithless. And so when you turn to the end of the Bible... John is saying, I see who makes it. I see who will be with Jesus in eternity, and it's those who believe. That's why the author of Hebrews speaks about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He goes on to say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He goes so far as to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. The, the, the art of Hebrews is saying, without faith, there is absolutely nothing you and I can do that brings pleasure and glory and honor to God. It's impossible. And then the author of Hebrews, it takes us to what I would want to call Canton, Ohio, not Canton, Mississippi, 
Canton, Ohio. What's in Canton, Ohio? I don't know. I do know that's where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is. And that's where anybody who is somebody in football, their jerseys are there, their helmets are there, their stats are there, their busts, like this, this, this figure of their heads and everything they've accomplished, it's there, right there in Canton, Ohio. And so if you are an avid football fan and you want to go see who are the greats, you go to Canton, Ohio. And here's what the author of Hebrews does in Hebrews 11. He says, if you want to take a look at the greats, we got a place for that. It's Hebrews 11. It's the Hall of Fame for the faithful. And Abel is in there. And Enoch is in there. And Noah is in there. And Abraham is in there. And Sarah is in there. And David is in there. And Moses is in there. And Barak is in there. Like all of these people that we read from the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews puts them there and says something about them that sets them apart from humanity is this trust and reliance in the one true God. Now, here's the thing. Who's not there? Look, I don't think that that, that can't be an exhaustive, exhaustive list because that person would still be writing. If that chapter was trying to contain every single person who ever walked the earth, who ever trusted in the Lord, they would probably still be writing. But did you notice who gets skipped over? Adam and Eve. Their names aren't in Hebrews 11. Their son is, Abel, the one who was killed by Cain. But that's where he starts. Now, look, I hope and I believe that maybe we'll see Adam and Eve in glory. But here's what the Bible isn't doing. It's not propping them up to you and I as examples of faith. Now, why? Because the essence of what they did in the garden, before it was about a fruit to eat off of a tree, you know what was really going on? It was unbelief. God's words from God's mouth, you are free to eat of everything you see. Anything you eat is yours except for this one tree. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what you start to see, they're tempted by the serpent and they actually don't believe. And so well before there's a sin of action, what the Bible will say, it's a sin of unbelief. They actually didn't think that God was being right with them. They didn't think that the day that they, eat, they ate of it that they would surely die. They didn't think that it was enough that they were made in the image of God, that, that it reads as if they wanted to be God. It was a fall of epic proportions. And before it had to anything to do with what went in their mouths, it had everything to do with what was going on in their hearts. And so it makes perfect sense then that God is after in Mark 8 and 9, the same thing he's after in all of the Bible. It's the reason the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth for his public ministry, it was not repent and obey the law. It was repent and believe. 
when asked, what's the work of God? What did Jesus say? The work of God is that you believe. Now take that in. It sounds like to me that one of the grand things of the Bible is belief and trust and resting in God and fleeing to God. Then it makes perfect sense that when Jesus comes down the mountain, he says, you faithless generation. He doesn't see faith. Which moves us into our second point. I think Jesus does take us into the confusion around unbelief. I'm willing to bet that when Jesus calls them faithless, I'm willing to bet that some were thinking, what do you mean faithless? I'm circumcised. I go to the temple. I know my law. I know know the the word of God. How can you call me faithless? And I think what Jesus is doing in Mark 9 is actually exposing for us this, the ways in which we can mistaken true faith that God is after and faith that we fashion in our image. And so what are some of the ways that, that we see that, that, that they lack the faith that Jesus is after? I think they lack it with this idea that faith equals knowledge, Right? I think it's really easy to think because I know things about the Bible or I know facts about the Bible, then that must mean that I am faithful, full of faith. And that's not true. How do we know it's not true? Because if you track with Mark and where he's been since Mark chapter 1, as soon as Jesus preached his first sermon, you know what the people said? You teach and preach as one with authority and not as the scribes. So file that in your mind. The next time Jesus interacts with the scribes, it's around this idea of him forgiving sins. He tells someone, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes and he sits with sinners and tax collectors. And it's the scribes who say, how can he do this? How can he forgive sin? It's the scribes who say, how is he sitting with them? It's the scribes when Jesus is casting out demons, they come up to Jesus and they actually attack him and they say, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebub or or the satanic forces. You have no authority. You are not God. You're doing everything you're doing by the power of Satan. And you know who attacked Jesus then? It was the scribes. And then it was the same scribes who when Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands, they came and attacked them. Why don't your disciples do what our fathers say we should do? And it makes perfect sense that in in Mark chapter 8, when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, did you catch what Jesus says in 831? And he immediately began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And then did you catch who's arguing with the disciples at the bottom of the mountain? He saw a great crowd around him, and the scribes were arguing with him. You catch the theme that Mark is saying? Jesus just told us in Mark 8, the scribes will kill me. 
and the elders and the religious leaders. And here's the bad news. They knew the word of God. It wasn't a, ma a matter of information. The scribes had theology on top of theology on top of theology. They knew the law. But you know what they lacked? Trust and relationship. It was knowers of the law that put our Savior on the cross. And that ought to make us a little worried. Because I think we pride ourselves on theological precision. And we pride ourselves on how much we know about God. And it would be unfair for me to not tell you that your knowledge about God does not mean you know him. But we think that. I also think we see in the passage that faith does not equal some past experience we've had. What do you mean by that? I've done a lot of funerals. And something that, that I've kind of noticed, not at all of them, but at some of them, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt, is that this is kind of, we, we kind of view coming to faith like it's a box that we check off. So-and-so joined so-and-so, so-and-so church at the age of nine, and they were baptized under so-and-so, and they walked down the aisle, and they got that checkbox done back then when they were eight or nine. And then when you kind of watch how they live from like 10 to 79, and you start to kind of talk about how holy they were at the funeral, and then some of their closest friends are like, are we talking about the same person? Now, why? Because I think in the South, we kind of think that real faith is when I check this box off when I was a kid. Now that that box is checked off, I can kind of go do me. And hey, I got this thing in my back pocket. I came to faith back then. And we were just kind of ride that, that grace wagon all the way. You know, does it make sense? And we kind of choose, it's kind of something in the past. And it's not vibrant. It's not present. Now, I'm guilty of it, right? I'm a product of the South, right? So I, I did it too. But did you notice in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the passage, earlier in Mark, Jesus commissioned the disciples. And he gave them authority over demons. And he sent them out two by two. And they went out and preached they went out and cast out demons, and they went out and healed, and demons obeyed them. So now you come over to Mark chapter 9, and these same disciples who had this past experience, Jesus, you gave me power back here, three chapters or four chapters ago, you gave us power over the demonic, and we got that power in our back pocket. And so then this man brings him his son, and the disciples, we got this power in our back pocket, but Jesus, they won't obey us. And so what does Jesus say at the end of our passage? After Jesus has to intervene, they're like, Jesus, what happened? He says, some of these can only be driven out by prayer. Well, what is prayer? Is prayer not an exercise of faith? Is it not your mind? 
And all authority that I have, it comes from you. And you kind of walk and go through life with this awareness of his presence and this communion with him. And then you get over here where the, the demonic, it comes to you. And because you're communing and, 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 and in the presence of the father, that maybe they were supposed to be able to do this. But here's what I think Jesus is calling out. Ah, oh, you thought it was just about what I gave you back then. And you feel like I've let you loose to do you now. And you're not remembering that the faith I'm after is ongoing. It's a posture. I also think faith in our age can, can, can be viewed as a key. It's the key for me to turn and I can get anything I want from God because I have this key. I can name this thing and claim this thing and this thing is now mine. And so we start to use God like a genie but we put, you know, t Christian terminology around it. I have faith that this is going to happen. Now, I totally get how we can get that. If you look at the passage, Jesus himself says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes in verse 23. So I get it. I also get the other passage where Jesus says, if you tell this mountain to move to the sea and you have faith, it will be done. But here's the danger of, of one, not looking at Scripture in its context, but, but two, forming an entire theology around one or two verses. So let me give you an example of it. Hebrews 11. One of the reasons I had Steve read it is because we did see the miraculous. Abraham and Sarah were beyond childbearing years, and they trusted the Lord. And he gave them Isaac. Noah was warned of God's judgment. And in faith, he built this ark year after year after year after year after year. And when the bottoms of the earth opened up and water came from above, that by faith, this man and his family, they lived. By faith, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, by faith, a lot of miraculous things happen. And here's what you'll do. If you read Hebrews 11, it's going to be split. The top group, they get the miraculous. But guess what? There's a bottom group. And I'm going to read exactly from Hebrews 11. Listen to what it says about those who were faithful. Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, some were stoned and sawn in two. Some were killed with the sword. Others went about in skins of sheep, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, and they wandered in the desert and mountains and dens and caves. And guess what? They're in the same chapter. They're both in Hebrews 11. Some saw the miraculous, and guess what? Some didn't. Some lost their lives. Some lost their homes. Some were sawn in two. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that they're both counted faithful. So here's the danger of thinking faith is a key that unlocks my best life now. 
to give me everything I want now, you fly in the face of Hebrews 11, which says to you and I, sometimes God does the miraculous. Sometimes you pray for children, and the doctors have said, no, it's not going to happen. And you trust him for it, and he does what no one can do, and he comes through. And sometimes you pray for a spouse, and you commit to honoring the Lord with your singleness. And a year later, he provides. And sometimes you have cancer, and you want the Lord to take it, and he says no. And sometimes you pray for a spouse. And it feels like it's a no. Is something wrong with you if he answers your prayers that way? Do you need to just have more faith? No. Some, he's enough. He's enough. And that's a hard lesson to hear when the world tells us just turn the key and get what you want. Sometimes God says, I'm enough. And I choose not to answer that prayer in that way. You want an answer. I think that's what these people learned. I'm sure they did not enjoy being sawn in two. I'm sure they did not enjoy being stoned to death. But you know who was with them and in it? The Lord. And so let us not make that mistake to think that faith is this key to get what we want. The Bible would say otherwise. Then there's pluralism, right? That, that, that all roads lead to God. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Well, that, that can't be true because truth has to on some level be absolute. And it, it, it isn't all roads to heaven, all roads to glory, that on some cosmic level that we kind of have to know that, that somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. And what the scripture is saying over and over and over again, that there is one name given under men and women by which we must be saved. And there is one true God and there are a bunch of counterfeits and phonies. And Scripture calls us to trust by the Spirit this God who's revealed himself from his word, who tells us things about our souls and tells us things about this world. Like, I totally get it why the world is broken. Because the Scripture says, of the, it talks about the fall. I totally get it why everyone dies. Because we're all conceived in sin. And I also believe the same scripture that talks about a new man coming who is God, who's going to redeem and rescue and change all things. Like, like there has to be this degree to where, man, it, it, we can't be pluralistic where all roads lead to God. Somebody has to be right and some have to be wrong. And we have to be unapologetic about it. Gracious and kind, but there has to be some sense of what's truth. Were you in all of those ways in which the faith that we perceive or chase after? Are you guilty of making faith knowledge? 
Are you guilty of making faith equal to something you did when you were nine? Do you think faith is a key? I think what Jesus is doing in Mark is kind of exposing that. And then he moves, right? I think he moves from exposing what is wrong or unhealthy to presenting us with what is right. So what is true faith, Jesus? What's the essence of it? I think we see it through the Father. And the first thing you see, the first component of faith that pleases God is desperation. Did you notice in the passage that the people's kids who were perfect, the people's whose lives are in order, aren't the ones commended for faith in this passage? Did you notice that it's actually this man who has this son who is probably a teenager right now, who is possessed by a demon that throws him into epileptic seizures, that makes him gnaw and gnash his teeth, that makes his body lock up. Can you imagine what it's like to see your kids suffer? Can you imagine what it's like to be a covenant family where you circumcise your child and you are raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and you come to Jesus and you address him as rabbi and yet Jesus asks you, sir, how long have you been carrying this? And the man says, since my child was born. And so how bad is it? They did not have electricity in Jesus' day. And the demon says, every time there's fire, the man says, every time there's fire, he throws my son into it. And whenever we're near water, he wants to throw my son into it. That means ordinary things like cooking at home because they don't have microwaves. So they're cooking with an open flame. They don't have light bulbs. And so you light a candle to light up the house And all of these things that we take for granted, these become moments of frustration and fracture for the father. That I can't light this because it's going to throw him in it. We can't go near water because it's going to throw him in it. And this has been going on and on and on and on. This man is hurting. He's desperate. But it's not just desperation. It's also inability. And you see, the man says, teacher, I brought him to your disciples, and they could do nothing. And maybe this man is like the woman earlier in Mark who goes to see every doctor, but because this is not medical, it's, it's satanic and demonic, even the doctors can't help. When I was growing up, I, had, I have, not past tense, a cousin who uh, struggled with seizures. And, and I remember, I learned what phenobarbital was, right? And it's because of my aunt right here. I was like, nah, you couldn't tell me nothing. I, I knew a big old pharmacy word, phenobarbital, right? And it was seizure medicine. I think it's kind of outdated now, right? But it was seizure medicine. But I know what it's like when my cousin would have seizures. 
And it's the one thing that my aunt could give my cousin that would help him. Imagine life when there is no help and there is no remedy. It's inability. And then that's layered on top of this beautiful object that I'm desperate and I can't fix this. And through what I know about God and his word, it's pointing me to the one who can. And that's why the man says, teacher, I brought him to you. You were up the mountain, and so I I settled for your disciples. But make no mistake about it. I came here for you. And what does Jesus say? He says, bring the boy to me. And then there's help from the object, from Jesus himself. And so the, 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 the father asks Jesus, will you have compassion on us? And the answer is absolutely yes. That Jesus is tailor-made for our weakness. We are needy, unable, and what we see in Scripture is that he is all-powerful and he empathizes with us. When the Father asks Jesus, will you have compassion? The word there is, will your heart break over what's breaking my heart? And Jesus says, my heart does break over what's breaking your heart. And so you get in Jesus this perfect compatibility with our weakness. We are desperate. We are unable. We need an outside object who's strong and mighty and who is able and willing to help us. And Jesus says, look no further than me. It's me. I ache over what breaks your heart. And I know you're needy and I take delight in helping. And not only am I all powerful, I am all willing. And what you see in this passage, this man comes to Jesus and he says, I believe. But help my unbelief. I believe, but help the parts of me that doesn't believe. And and that is like that is the cherry on top for Jesus. When we come to him with that posture, I believe, but help me in my doubting. I believe, and I know I don't believe perfectly, but help me in my weakness. That just that your Savior adores that honesty, and it moves him to act in the passage. So much so that we might say that faith is not rooted in the strength and certainty and consistency of what we feel about God, but it's rooted in the accuracy and the heaviness and the weightiness and the power and the love of Jesus himself. And so that's why our reflection quote, did you read it? It actually says, you may have weak faith that you wish were stronger, but you have a strong Savior who could not be more powerful. If you are his, it is not because your trust never wavers, but because his love for you never fails. That'll preach right there, won't it? And that moves Jesus. I think what Mark does is give us a picture of faith. 
And this is true for conversion. If you are here this morning and the weight of the law is on you, where you're trying to live up to God's standard, you know what the Spirit's going to do? It's going to constantly humble you and say, you can't do it. And guess what? You are tempted to think that if I can just try harder tomorrow, we're going to be okay. And you get on this treadmill and guess what? You can't do it. And the Spirit is going to humble and humble and humble and humble until you feel desperate. Until you feel your inability to live up and into who God calls us to be. And by God's grace, if God is at work, you know where he's going to direct your gaze? He's going to direct your gaze to Jesus, the one who is strong, the one who is for the weak, the one who is able to be approached. And Jesus is going to help you. He is going to go to a cross and do what you can't do and die in your place that you who are weak might be counted righteous in the Lord. That is the essence of coming to faith in Jesus. But here's the thing. It's not just something we do in the past tense. Martin Luther says the Christian life, when Jesus speaks about faith and repentance, it's all of the Christian life. Which means that our posture over and over again is coming to Jesus. Jesus, I got a parent, children. Yeah, I can do it, right? Most of us who are parents, we realize that, man, this is like hard. And if there's any chance that we're going to do this in a way that honors the Lord, we got to go there. Like, this is hard. And unless your spirit helps, I'm, I'm unable to do it. And we bring that to Jesus. And then Jesus helps. He, he gives us wisdom and grace. And he empowers us to parent in a way that honors him. That you could say that this is the posture for all of life. Take something, pick something. And for us to live by faith, we're going to constantly be exposed to our own human weakness, our own human inability, our own coming back to the gospel. And then God, by his spirit, empowering us. That's the faith that Jesus is after in the passage. Is that you this morning? Sometimes it is for me, sometimes it isn't. But you want to know what makes me thankful? Here's the good news of the passage. I think what we have in Mark 9 is a picture of the gospel. Where was Jesus at the beginning of Mark 9? glory at the top of the mountain with the Father. And what does Jesus do? He comes down and enters into the fracture and the fray. And could it be that Mark is setting us up for how his book ends? Well, the good news of the gospel is that we are all like the sun in the passage. We are all born in sin. We are all born following after the world. But we believe someone left the right hand of the Father to come down and to rescue us.
And we believe that we have a father in heaven who brings us to the cross and presents us to his son and says, son, I have these children that I want you to save and I present them to you. And we believe we have a savior in Jesus who will actually do that. He is the faithful one. He is the one that we salute in the hall of faith. He is the one whose faith never wavered. He is the one who trusts the Lord from beginning to the end and died in our place for our weaknesses. And then what we see in the passage is he gives us a foretaste of where all things are going. Did you notice that Jesus cast out the demon and says, never come here again, ever. And the boy looked as if he was dead. And then Jesus went over and touched him and the boy was raised. What's happening there? It's a foretaste. The world that Adam and Eve messed up, that's broken and fractured in Genesis 3, it's the world in Mark 9 that Jesus says, I'm making all things new. You trust me, and I'm going to bring you home. You trust me, and I'm going to bring you home. I'll bring you home, says Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would strengthen our faith. Father, we know that we all fall short in this area. We pray that we would see that our righteousness is with you. We pray that the Jesus that we meet in this passage who loves the weak, who loves the needy, who loves the humble, who loves to be a present help in time of trouble, who is himself beautiful. Father, we pray that we would learn that posture of resting and coming and trusting. Would you do this for your glory? Amen.